All right, come on in, find a seat. <clears throat> the guys were handing out copies of our paperwork for the lesson. It's the same as you received last week, but for any of you who are not here or didn't bring that back with you, we have copies. So anybody not have the notes? Everybody has? The ushers do a great job. Thank you guys for that. And welcome to all of you <clears throat> who could not afford to get away for the holiday weekend. And who cares about the rest of them, okay? Now, good to see you all. And uh, just one announcement to make, uh, and I made it last week, I will for the next couple, just because it's an opportunity to uh, get to know one another outside of Sunday morning, and that's why we offer these things, and that is our Muttons game is on Friday the 21st, the 21st. And you can go to our website, cbctrenton.com, and you can purchase those, uh, those tickets there. And we always have a great time with that. This is our seventh session, but it's our third section. So, so far we've, we've had three, our, our course divided into three sections. The first section was a change of perspective if we're going to have a change of heart. <clears throat> if we're going to achieve change of heart and lasting change comes from the heart, then we're going to first of all have to have a change of perspective from the outside to the inside. So our perspective is going to have to be altered so that we no longer look outside of ourselves for the change that's necessary, but rather inside of ourselves. And then secondly, the second section was a change of counselor. If we're going to have a change of heart, we not only have to have a change of perspective from the outside to the inside, but a change of counselor from an insider to an outsider. Most of us get our counsel from people who are inside the same problem, same bubble that we have. So you need a change of counselor to one who is outside of the problem. As a matter of fact, someone who has no particular problems themselves. That, that person would be God. And thankfully, God has positioned himself as our chief counselor. In the notes from those couple of sessions... We said that God is, in fact, the first psychologist, and the Bible, if properly understood and then applied, is a book of psychology, which means, the word means, the study of the soul. Now, if you were not able to be here for those, any of those past sessions, those are available at our website, and so I would encourage you, and we have the notes there that you can download, I would encourage you to, to listen to those. Last week, we started a new and third section, a change regarding changing. So a change of perspective, a change of counselor, and now a change regarding changing. That is, what if it does not change? What if the situation we are in or the person that we're dealing with does not change? What if it's chronic? And most of us come to our problems with a demand, implied demand, that it must change whatever it is. But the truth is there are times that God has chosen for it not to change. Now why? I spent some time last week talking about why uh, it is that God gives us things that are outside of our power to control. And one of the main reasons that God does that is to emphasize dependence on Him, which does not come naturally. 
Dependence on God for none of us comes naturally. And the reason it does not come naturally is because that was our original rebellion, you may recall. Was that we would declare our independence from God. And so we were tempted by the serpent saying, the reason God does not want you to eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil is because he knows that in the day you do this, you will be like God. Well, that was tempting enough. We want to be like God. And then we can make our own rules of good and evil. We can decide what's good and what's evil rather than God deciding what's good and what's evil. And so now God is on this quest to reform his creatures into dependent rather than independent rebellious creatures toward him, which all of us are by nature. So that great theologian John Cougar Mellencamp says, I fight authority, authority always wins. And yet, in the song... He says, I keep doing it. In fact, he says, I've been doing it since I was a kid. I fight authority. Authority always wins. Well, you know, that is, that is part of God putting, designing his world with authority structures in it in order to teach us that very lesson. You know, your fighting is futile. Resistance is ultimately futile. But sin causes us to keep beating our heads against that wall and still coming at it day after day. Chronic circumstances are designed by God to turn us to God. Now, that raises an understandable question. Does that mean, then, that those who suffer in chronic circumstances have a rebellion problem that others don't? Is that why God gave me something that he didn't give to other people? Because I have a bigger problem with rebellion than other people do not. No, not necessarily, because as I have said and the Bible teaches, we all have the problem of independent rebellion. Rather, now hear this carefully, especially if you are a brother or sister who is in a situation like that, this chronic suffering. It may be that God gave it to us not because we are somehow worse, but rather because, in a sense, we're better. You remember that God chose, we talked last week about the fact that God chose Job for this particular task. And God gave all of this suffering to Job. Why Job? Well, the book tells us why Job. Job was a righteous man. Job was, Job, Job was upright. Job was blameless. God knew that Job would be his vessel to show the priority of God to others. Satan said, no, if you take the things you give him away, he only serves you because of what you give him. You take that away, he doesn't need you anymore. But Job showed that that, that was not true about Job's character. And so, friend, I can't say... No one can say, other than God, why he has chosen to give any of us the particular things that he has. I can't, but I certainly would encourage you to not draw the conclusion that because you have some chronic thing that you've had all of your life and may have for the rest of your life, that's because somehow you are more rebellious than I am. 
I doubt it. (laughs) But rather, it may, in fact, be that God has so constituted you, God has so given you in your nurture and your nature, which we'll talk about a bit later, the ability to withstand and thereby display God's goodness like Job did to others. It, in fact, can be a high calling. Think about the Apostle Paul. We read of Paul's suffering and the way Paul handled that suffering because God chose Paul for it. Why did he choose Paul? Because Paul was worse? No. So Paul's life could be instructive for ours. And so you may well be the person that God has enabled to do that in order to show others what Job did, that God is more important than me, God is more important than my circumstances. So don't despair that it's because you're worse than any of the rest of us here who may not have chronic suffering. So if you look at the bottom of page 15, we just covered the first two-thirds of page 15. We'll try to make some tracks today. But at the bottom, 2 Corinthians 12 Paul says three times, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so you see in the life of Paul, you see in the life of Job, you see in the lives of others of God's people, the Bible was not written so that our lives will be problem-free. For Paul, he never recovered. What we're given in the Scriptures, though, is a Savior who transforms you through the power of the gospel, which happens at times by not removing the thorns in your life. He did not come to give you a great marriage, a disease-free body, financial freedom. Two reasons. It could be God wants to keep your thorns stuck in your flesh like he did with Paul because that's the best way for you to put his son on display. You can show people in your sphere of influence what Job showed. Or it could be God wants you to get rid of your thorn in the flesh because that's the best way for you to put his son on display. Do you guys notice something in common about both of those? In either case, what's the end game? To put his son on display. And so God so arranges our lives so that we are put in position to consider that, think about that, repent of failure to do that, and turn from our natural problem that all of us have that Romans chapter 1 speaks of. Romans chapter 1 beginning in verse 18, all the way through verse 32, but particularly verse 25, Romans chapter 1 and verse 25, says that at heart, the problem of humanity, sinful humanity, is that we exchange the glory of the Creator in favor of the glory of the created. And so we we want the gifts that are in the creation... And we want to take that and prioritize it above the one who gave it. And one of the reasons that God then gives suffering in our lives is in order for us to see and be reminded and forced to acknowledge that God is, in fact, the creator is more important than the creation and his gifts. So top of page 16, your main goal 
should be to put Jesus on display in your life, regardless of how God chooses to accomplish it. The promise of the therapeutic culture is to get rid of your problems. The promise of God is to find strength through your problems. Again, Paul, on his thorn in the flesh, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Strong how? Through the power of God, which displays Him. Your strength, glory, hope, and praise is found in God rather than in a perfect relationship or a healthy body. It's a person's unwillingness to embrace this kind of theology of suffering that opens the door to discouragement and depression. The longer it takes a person to understand, embrace, and find joy in suffering, the more susceptible they will be to discouragement. Our therapeutic culture is opposed to this kind of teaching because they're beholden to an anti-suffering message. Part of the American dream is to remove all suffering from everyone, which is an untenable teaching that does not factor in the doctrine of fallenness. We live in a fallen world, therefore there will be suffering in all shapes and varieties. If your goal is to rid yourself of your problems, but you cannot get to that utopian place, then you may be set up for irresolvable disappointment. If your medications do not work or divorce does not give you a better life, then you'll not be far from depression. So let me stop there for a minute. So all that is why you have heard me say a number of times over the years this. Expectations minus reality equals trouble. Okay, that's, that's your formula for life. Expectations minus reality equals trouble. You see, we get set up for midlife crisis, for example. I mean, that's a thing. You know that that's a thing, right? People hit midlife, they hit 40, and they realize that all of the stuff that they expected, much of it or none of it, is actually going to happen. So now what? And, you know, you've all seen, it's pitiful, isn't it? We all try to start over. You know, we try to be 20 again. You know, all of that. Just don't do that. We all know you're not 20, okay? So don't do it. But we try to do it because we've hit this midlife crisis. And so <coughs> I say midlife crisis starts in your 20s or perhaps earlier in your teens. It starts when you created the expectations. When you had in your mind, this is the way my life is going to go. And then for almost all of us, very few people see life go the way they had planned. Very few people. And so those expectations are not met. Expectations, and then we hit hard against reality. So which of those can you adjust? Well, we, st we start chipping away at reality. We try to, you know, I'll change my reality. I'll go to self-help gurus who tell me if I think positive faults, thoughts, I can make my own reality. I can make a new reality. I can do, you know, all this nonsense. I can create a new reality in my family. I've got to get another spouse, man. I've got to get another job. I've got to get a new career. I've got everything. And so we start trying to make all of these changes to reality 
But reality keeps biting. Reality keeps coming to the fore, and it's not in line with what we expected. What we should do is adjust our expectations. And what we also should do, by the way, all of us in this room who are all adults at various ages, but we should all go out of our way to help the next generation not make the mistakes we did. You see, because experience is the best teacher, especially when it's somebody else's experience. Why, why does the next generation have to experience what I already know? Why does the next generation have to experience getting involved in the foolishness and the stupid stuff that I already did? So we tell them at a young age, set your expectations with God at the center and let God control the reality as it comes into your life. And you shape your heart around that God so that come what may, whatever reality he has for you now, your desire is to put Jesus on display in your life. And if you do that, then it's all good. But if you set up, this is the way it's going to be, and this is the way it's got to be, and you hit 35 or 40, you're going to be in a world of hurt. And so are the people around you. Expectations minus reality results in trouble, and the way we manifest it is different for all of us. Discouragement, depression, anger, frustration, wander, wanderlust. I just have to, you know, kind of find myself. I just kind of got to get out there. I got to see the world. I got to something, man, because it's just not going right. I need a new environment. And the problem is not that. The problem is, as I've been saying all of these weeks, it's inside. You see, we should expect suffering in a fallen world. We should expect suffering. And it is a testimony to the grace of God that we are surprised by suffering. You know, if, if the world is as the Bible says it is, If the world is fallen, if all of the people in it are fallen, sinful, if the creation itself is affected adversely by the effects of the fall, if all of that is true, then suffering should be everywhere. People should be just dropping dead in front of us like all the time. It should be miserable every moment of every day in this fallen world. Have you ever considered that? I mean, couldn't it be that way if if, if the world is, as God says, and we are under his judgment, could he not consign us to that kind of existence? The answer is yes. And yet, in his grace, suffering is the exception rather than the rule, but only because of his grace. We should not be surprised by suffering. We should be surprised that things go right as often as they do. In a, fallen, in a fallen world. Middle of page 16. You can measure how you think about these questions by examining how you respond to the difficult challenges that are in your life. If you have peace, hope, and rest in the midst of your deepest trials, then you've not been ensnared by the culture's suffering-free promise. This does not mean that being sick, poor, and having dysfunctional relationships is the only way to be strengthened by God. 
The idea in view here is not celebrating sin or suffering, but celebrating Christ regardless of your circumstances. The only way you can be strong is by living in God's strength, not your own. The only way you can truly overcome is by celebrating God's strength through your weakness, brokenness, sickness, and poverty. And we'll keep moving here in a minute. But if God's goal is for him, his person, to be glorified, to put Jesus on display is another way of saying that, to show the worth of God, to show the value of God, to shine the character of God as most important to us, then, friends, if we chafe at the circumstances that God brings into our lives, then we're failing at the most basic task for which God has placed us here. Namely, to display Him, to bring glory to Him. To display His character, come what may. And the world sees that from us. The world sees... I mean, think about it. If you handle your circumstances no differently than the way the person at work handles their circumstances, then how do they see any difference that Jesus makes? So the stakes are very high here. Your well-being is at stake for you to have the right perspective on what the Lord allows into your life. But also your mission is at stake with regard to how you portray a relationship with God and the difference that it makes. Does it make a difference? So God, bottom of page 16, places us beyond our ability to help us get over ourselves. The Lord mercifully puts us in a place or situation where we cannot control or manipulate the outcome. When that happens, you've got two choices. Press on in your own way or relinquish our rights to our situation and trust God's way even if it does not make sense to us. So here are a few examples of times when God's way is hard to embrace. You decide. Read over the statements. Analyze yourself. Which is easier, to respond in your own strength or God's? So when it's time to forgive someone who has hurt you, what does God want? He wants you to forgive. What do you want? That's why God has to spill ink in the Bible. <laughs> like vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Because <laughs> we know what you want, naturally. We know what I want, naturally. When it's time to ask forgiveness first, rather than responding to what they've asked, rather you're the one who needs to ask. How hard is that for you? Top of page 17. When it's time to seek forgiveness from someone you believe has a worse sin than yours. So you've sinned against somebody else, but you also know what a crumb they are. And the truth of the matter is, they're a bigger crumb than you are. And I've got to go to that guy and ask forgiveness? When it's time to regularly submit to and serve your spouse after the two of you have built up animosity toward one another over a lot of years. Which is what many people call a marriage. We've been together for a lot of years. We've survived. But many people who have been together for decades, rather than having a marriage, they have an existence. And you see it. You see it in how they interact. 
They have, they've caught every slight. They've remembered every cross word. They've not engaged in forgiveness and reconciliation along the way, and it's built up. So that's that old couple in the restaurant that's sitting across from each other and not speaking to one another. What a sad existence. That's the way that. So which one is harder? Clearly. Not submitting, but rather serving yourself. When it's time to share your innermost struggles to your small group or to your friends. Do you know that God is regularly testing you by giving you opportunities like these to trust Him? Typically, these moments happen when you do not want to trust Him or you genuinely do not understand how to trust Him. In either case, He's asking you to do what you may not be willing to do or don't have the wisdom, insight, clarity, or knowledge to do. God works beyond your ability. I want to point something out about those bullet points at the bottom of page 16, top of page 17. Do you notice that those are not about physical suffering. We've talked a lot about Paul's thorn in the flesh. That's one form of suffering. But these now are other ways, other hardships, other difficulties. And these are relational. And the idea here is to show you the panoply, the, the full perspective on, in a fallen world, how many challenges we have and to which we bring the same heart to all of them. And so we need the same kind of corrective for all of them. So here are 12 universal assumptions about people. Because you're sitting here, and many of you have been here for most or all of this series. Thank you for coming. And, but you may be thinking, you know, you've been describing some examples of some stuff that's going on, but it really is not me. You really haven't described me. Here's my thing. There's my particular circumstance. There's my particular history. And nobody really understands me. So it's important because we tend to go in that direction. There's my story and my story is absolutely unique. Because we tend to go in that direction, we need to understand that there are these universal things about us that apply to all of us. When I counsel somebody, before they ever say a word to me, I already know a bunch of stuff about them. Not because I've been stalking them. I already know a bunch of stuff because I read a book. See, this is the thing. This is what they'll find out. In the very first session, all right, maybe the second. I might let them talk in the first session. But by the second session, they will know and I will say, I read a book about you. I know about you. I know about how, what makes you tick. I know what kinds of struggles you have because I have them. There are universal things about us. So one of the things that I try to do is to lift the person beyond their particulars. Not that they're unimportant. They're just not most important. And they're not first. Before you talk about what's happened to a particular person, you have to set it in the framework with regard to what's happened to all people what's universal, and then we can get to the particulars. A person's history, whatever that may be, does not alter what we already knew about him or her from the, from the Bible. It 
And so what does the Bible teach us? We're going to see in that chart at the bottom these 12 things that you can say about everybody. But before we look at those 12 items, there are these two major categories that the Bible teaches and that those in the helping professions also use and try to help people in. And that is the two broad categories of nature and nurture. And the Bible teaches that both of those, indeed, affect all of us. But we all have a universal nature. Our nurture is different for each of us. The environment in which I grew up, the things that were modeled before me, those are different for all of us. But our nature is the same. And so we want to start with our nature. We want, when we look at universals, these are universals regarding our nature. Then we can look at the particulars about your nurture and how that affected you and how that manifests you itself given your nature. So a person's history, whatever that may be, does not alter what we already knew about him or her from the Bible, but history and shaping influences are helpful data points that paint a clearer picture so that we can see through our own history to how we think and make decisions. So you've got this graphic at the bottom of page 17. And it is explained, the graphic is, these 12 assumptions, if you were to look at, if you were to count what's on page 17 in that graphic, there are 12. So in the middle, down at the bottom, you've got the heart there. And the first item is faith or belief. Or lack of faith or unbelief. That's first. Two is shame, three is guilt, then fear, comfort, control, and self-reliance. So you've got those seven things, and then to the left, you've got five more. So those are the 12, and those are th 12 things that are true about all of us. 12 universal assumptions about people, and they are listed beginning on page 18. So let's pretend that you're counseling Adam. Let's put Adam on the couch, diagnose his real problems, the ones in his heart. In the infographic, there are two groups of heart problems. The first group begins with, that's the one in the middle, that had the heart at the bottom, and then goes from unbelief or lack of faith and then up. That first group begins with unbelief, moves vertically, all the way up through self-reliance. The second group is those five things on the left side, and it's more eclectic than sequential. So here's the first group. Everybody's got this in common, and that is our struggle with what or who we trust, what or who we believe. And that's at the bottom of all of our issues, all of us. What or who do I believe, have faith in? If you work a person, page 18, down to their most basic and foundational problem, it will be unbelief. This was the first sin of Adam, and all other sins flow out of this common heart commitment. So just think for a moment, is, do you think that's true? 
When you take matters into your own hands and violate what God has said about your circumstances, in that moment, you, are not only, you may not only be sinning by violating a direct command of God, at the bottom of the reason that you're violating that command is because you don't believe God. So here's an example. You're not happy in your marriage. Your spouse is not, uh, has not abandoned you. They're not left. They've not committed adultery. Those are the two clear reasons that you can get a divorce in the Bible. Now notice I say two clear reasons. There are some less clear reasons. So I'm just throwing that out there. But there are two clear reasons, and they haven't done either one of those. But the truth is you're just sick of it. You're not in love with them anymore. I've had professing Christian people tell me this over the years. I'm just not in love anymore. You know, for, for, all, of the, for all of the preaching and the teaching about what love is, to get somebody to come and say, I've fallen out of love is a killer. Not only because I, I'm dying for that couple and that family, I can't believe you haven't heard a word I've said for all these years. Because that's not what love is, falling in and out. But nevertheless, it's what people do. And I'm, and I'm therefore going to get a divorce from my spouse in contradiction to what God says. So I'm sinning by directly violating the command of God. But beneath that sin, the reason that I'm doing that is because I don't believe God. What are some of the things I don't believe about God when I do something like that? I don't believe that God can give me joy in the midst of a difficult relationship. I don't believe that. Therefore, I've got to have a new relationship. God's saying you don't have to have a new relationship. He's not giving you the liberty to establish a new marriage relationship. But you decided you don't believe that God can give you joy in the midst of a difficult relationship. That's a lack of belief in the power of God. You don't believe that God can change your spouse. Now, I've been talking for a week and a half now about chronic problems. He may not change your spouse. I'm not saying he will, but he could. Does he have the power to do that? Of course he does. So at the bottom of the sins that we commit, indeed, things that we do that are direct violations of God's command, at bottom, what motivates those is a lack of faith a lack of belief in God. And that's why that is said in the graphic and on page 18. On the graphic it says faith and unfaith. On page 18 it's called unbelief, but that's because, as perhaps you've heard me say dozens of times, in the New Testament, faith and belief are the same word. So they can be used interchangeably. So page 18, again, unbelief. If you work a person down to their most basic and foundational problem, it will be unbelief. It was the first sin of Adam and all others flow from this heart commitment. If we trusted God the way we should, we would not sin the way we do. Adam trusted God in Genesis 1 and 2. Everything was copacetic. 
Genesis 3, he decided to not trust God, and the drift from God began. An example of basic unbelief is when I choose to get angry at my spouse. In such a situation, I'm no longer trusting the Lord because I'm choosing to rely on myself. I'll fix this my way. My way is to get angry in defiance of what God has said. I can't trust God to take care of it His way or to take care of me His way. Another example is when I become impatient at the traffic patterns in my city. I'm no longer resting, trusting in God's sovereign care for my life, but demanding things go according to my plans. All sin, big or small, flows out of a heart of unbelief. All of it. And you notice these are the, the so-called small things. But God sweats the small stuff. God sweats the details. God cares about traffic jams and arguments. And he also cares about divorces because God desires and deserves every part of you. And so God wants your attention and, his, and wants your allegiance when you're in the traffic jam and when you're in the argument. Now, if you believe any of this stuff that I'm talking about, then suddenly it's got to be dawning on you. Oh, man. I'm a wreck. I mean, if my, if my sin goes that deep, that I'm showing myself to be an unbeliever in those moments and in these common kinds of ordinary moments, then I'm a bigger mess than I thought I was. This is fantastic. If you think that about yourself, that is great. There's hope for you. There's hope for us to change. There's hope for us to see ourselves as needing that change of perspective from the inside out. There's hope for us to see the need for a change of counselor from insiders to one who is outside, namely God, as only He can cure it then. Jeremiah 17 and verse 9. The heart is wicked above all things. Who can know the heart of God? Who can, or who can know the heart of man and tame the heart of man? Only God can do that. And so if you see yourself in this and you see that this unbelief problem is foundational, then you can be a Christian who is more than the plastic Christian that comprise many of our churches. When I say the plastic Christian, I mean the Christian who knows what to say, knows what not to do, knows when to show up. But when it comes to radical change, by radical I mean root, when it comes to getting to change at the root so that it changes your demeanor, it changes your speech, it changes your behavior so that people can see that. And that doesn't happen much in church. So it's great if you go, I, you know, I believe that I'm an unbeliever at times. And I believe it shows up in these otherwise small ways in my life. And I believe it doesn't please God. I want to be rid of it. If you do that, man, there's great hope. There's great hope for you. There's great hope for us to be a real witness as a church body 
to people who need to see authentic difference, not plastic Christianity. So it starts with unbelief and then results in some other things. Middle of page 18, shame. After Adam chose to not place his confidence, his faith, his belief, his trust in the Lord, he felt weird inside. It's called biblical shame. It's an internal awkwardness where we're not totally comfortable in our own skins. This uncomfortableness, if not satisfied by a redemptive relationship with the Lord, will motivate a person to find solace in other ways through other means. This explains why there are so much unrest and discontentedness in our lives. So people come into the world with this natural tendency to not believe God. We all do. And until we are redeemed, until we have a heart change from the inside out, through the gospel and the work of God's Spirit in us, until that happens, that's what we carry around, that nature, that, that unbelieving nature. And it results in, first of all, what it did with Adam, shame. This sort of awkwardness. How do I fit in? Do I fit in? You know, I, 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 when, I, when I'm with people and, the, you know, as you grow, watch a child. I'm, I've, I've had two of them. I've watched them very carefully. Okay? And now I've got a grandchild, and I'm watching her very carefully. And I'm watching her with an amazed eye and with a biased eye as a grandfather. But, believe it or not, I'm also watching her through a biblical eye. And I see the same thing in Kit that I saw in Lainey, that I see in Aunt, saw in Annie. And my parents saw the same thing in me. And that is somebody trying to feel their way in the world. Where do I fit in? How do I fit in? And not by nature doing it with God at the center. Kit, as cute as she is, I mean, if anybody were able to get in on the sly, it would be Kit, okay? But nobody gets in on the sly. Nobody gets in because they're cute. And so our granddaughter comes into the world, and she's trying to, she's trying to figure it out. Where do I fit? She's already performing for people in order to find her satisfaction in what other people think already. When she takes steps, which she is doing, when she takes steps, she expects us all to clap. And we do. But she gets that, and she sees that, hey, I'm the center of attention here. So this is, this is my center of attention. This helps me now to overcome this otherwise what would be awkwardness but as she gets older, she's going to now branch out into more people than just folks who are fawning over her all the time, right? She's going to, she's going to encounter people who don't like her. They don't, they don't like, or she doesn't like them. Either way, they don't like each other because one of them's smarter than the other. One of them's prettier than the other, whatever. They're comparing themselves to each other. Where do I fit? Where do I fit in? And if God is not at the center of that, then the answers become discontentedness, unrest, 
That's what's at the heart, and it starts very early. And then, guilt. Born out of this shame comes the experience of guilt, which can be true or false. Even unbelievers feel, feel the guilt of their wrong actions, Romans 2 says. We're set up to feel guilty because we know there's something fundamentally broken inside of us. We're born in Adam. We have a sense of inner death, Romans 5. And so nobody comes into the world whole, and everybody comes into the world psychologically broken. Spiritually, but psychologically broken in the way we think about ourselves, in the, in the places that we go and the people to whom we go in order to, to make ourselves whole. And the more, longer we live and the more we interact, the more it shows up. And we're going to go down the list of all 12 of these to see how they, how they show up. When are we going to do that? Next week. Why? Because it's 11.59. By the time I finish praying, it will be noon. And I want you all to applaud for me because we're finishing right on time. Thank you, thank you. And which just shows that Kit comes by it honestly, right? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for today. Thank you for the, the Lord's Day each week and the freedom and the desire that you've given us to be together before you to worship you. I thank you for these friends and brothers and sisters that you brought with concern about their own lives and circumstances and a willingness to at least hear what you say about what true change looks like. So Lord, I pray that we are taking these things literally to heart, that you are affecting changes in us week by week. And I ask you to help us in the, the next few weeks as we finish our series to see actual change made, radical to the heart kinds of root change made, so that if our circumstances do not, are not altered, we are. And that we can bring glory to you in whatever, you in whatever and wherever you choose to place us. We ask you to go with us now, grant us safety, and bring us to back, back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.